0: text this before us this morning is really a text that has profoundly influenced my heart for years and especially investigating it in a deeper way this week at how amazing how amazingly long-suffering God is with stubborn, stiff-necked religious people as they continue to reject the very plain understanding of who he is and how he's presented himself to them and uh, and yet we find for a final time here he's extending his long-suffering his mercy towards them among other attributes um, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance I hope at the conclusion of this week, and we're going to be looking at this text into the next week as well, uh, I, hope, I hope it encourages you, at least along this line, that number one, um, if you're not saved yet, I, I hope you're encouraged by the conviction of the Spirit of God to believe jesus christ the son of god and then believing you might have life through his name you might be one of those religious ones that knows a lot about jesus but doesn't know him personally yet i pray that you are pleased to accept the conviction of the spirit of god to own him as your lord and savior and then for those of you who have friends and family members that you've been praying literally for years and decades that they would be born again I pray that you're encouraged by the demonstration of the patience of Jesus in saving people. Some of you have neighbors that you've been witnessing to for quite some time, spending a lot of time with, pleading for their, pleading for their soul's sake that they would know Jesus and they've yet to do so co-workers Um, we have friends of ours that we've recently spent some time with that we've been sharing Jesus with for for years and years and you get to that point where you think boy this is really the moment that they're gonna believe and and trust their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior and you even get to that point where you ask them, are you ready? And then there's this this blank stare like they didn't hear anything that you had said for the previous half hour. And our souls grow weary, right? We grow tired in those times. Uh, But then uh, the Lord gives us those who are saved and you've received a number of new birth announcements um, in the past month. And we're so thankful for those but I hope your hearts are encouraged uh, with our, the heart set of our God in relationship to those who have yet to come to know Christ and some quite stiff-necked while they wait to keep persevering with the same position and disposition that Jesus did with them, okay? So with that in mind, uh, let's look uh, at John chapter 10 this morning and... And let's begin in, in verse number 22. And let's read here through the end of the chapter together. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico or the porch of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So Jesus is saying, in plain speech, my actions have just put on display before you the nature of who I am as God in flesh verse 26 but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me those are three phrases familiar to pastor steve's message last week as jesus repeats how a good shepherd functions and how he leads and loves verse 28 and i give eternal life to them and they will never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones. This will be the third time in John's Gospel that they've done so to kill him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Sounds very familiar to chapter 8, doesn't it? Where he plainly asked them of which sin are you going to convict me of? Which of the works that I've done were not quality enough for you? And their answer is fascinating. The Jews told him for A good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. I think it's Leviticus chapter 11 where blasphemy in the Old Testament mosaic structure was worthy of stoning, public stoning. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Of course, he'd already done this before and they'd made up their minds that he wasn't. Nonetheless, Jesus graciously answered them, has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? He references Psalm 82 there. We'll look at that next week. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent in the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not the works, third mention of that in this text, of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. A very clear statement. the nature of Jesus Christ again. Verse 39, Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in Christ there. A little bit about the setting of this portion of John chapter 10. 167 years before John sets the scene of this passage, a brutal Syrian leader named Antiochus Epiphanes besieged Jerusalem and laid waste to Jehovah worship by offering a sacrifice upon the altar The temple in Jerusalem, commonly known as the abomination of desolation. Of course, this was the parenthesis in Jewish history of what we call the intertestamental period, where it seemed God had allowed the Jews to exist according to their own religious accord, as they had rejected him, and the announcement of the coming of Jesus as the Lamb of God. After the offering of desolation upon the altar in the temple, the Jewish people commenced for the first time in the training of guerrilla warfare, history tells us. Their purpose was to retake the temple grounds for Jewish worship purposes. During their training, one mighty in battle, Judas Maccabeus, commonly known at that time as the hammer, ascended to the top of the Jewish military ranks. And just three years later in 167 BC, just three years after the Antiochus offering of desolation, the Maccabean revolt commenced and the temple was retaken. The temple grounds would not be threatened again in such an extreme way until AD 70. At the retaking of the temple grounds for Jewish worship, a festival or a feast was established. It would last for a whole week It was called the Feast of Dedication. You'll never find this feast in the Old Testament, and this is why. The Maccabean Revolt and final takeover happened on the 25th of Kislev, according to our calendar, December 25th. In time, the Feast of Dedication would become known as Hanukkah. Of course, this holiday is still celebrated by modern Jews each year. And this is the setting of verse 22. This is the feast of dedication. Jesus was willing to celebrate this national holiday, if you will. It's winter, a much colder time in Jerusalem. Many believe that John's mention of the season of the year, the winter, was due to the coldness of the hearts of the Jewish religious leaders will encounter once again in this context. Nonetheless, we find Jesus walking in Solomon's portico. The porch portion of Solomon's temple had been rebuilt at least to that point with some colonnades. Jesus walks within the porch, which would prove to be a warmer place, literally warmer place, protected from the cold elements. And this is where we find him, being confronted during this week, Christmas week for us, if you will, by the religious leaders in what would be the final time in Jesus's public ministry. It's critical for all of us to know that this is the last occasion of public confrontation in Jesus' public ministry. We're just some three months now from the Passion Week at the end of which Jesus would be crucified. After this this scene, Jesus retreats to Bethany or not the Bethany of John 11 that we'll be learning about in a few weeks in John chapter 11, the hometown of Jesus' family and friends. But this was commonly known as Bethabara. There Jesus would retreat, as we read at the end of the chapter, for some 90 days before the Passion Week. This place of retreat, where his public ministry all began. For it was the place where John the Baptist's ministry was, and where John announced, Behold the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. So Jesus's formal earthly ministry begins with the exhilaration of the announcement of John the Baptist as to the saving purpose of Jesus' life and ministry, and it concludes in John chapter 10 with a public invitation for all unbelieving people to again believe upon Jesus as the Son of God and therefore have eternal life through his name. Now we might find this to be yet another tiresome account of Jesus being deceitfully confronted by religious leaders, we need to know that the centerpiece of this passage is verse 30. Here Jesus boldly proclaims for the first time in using these words in his public ministry, I and my Father are one. When he makes this exclusive pronouncement again for the third time in the book of john jews pick up stones to kill him john's whole purpose for writing this gospel was for people to believe to submit to the reality that jesus christ is the son of god in so doing they would turn from their pride and sin and and by the grace of God entrust themselves to Jesus as God and Lord of their lives. So Jesus trumpets using certain words for the first time that which he's often proclaimed using other words on our study of this gospel, that he is God in human flesh. So we're gonna take a few moments here to theologically understand this statement. How it's been understood, how it's been misunderstood, and and maybe how we should understand it here this morning. The first thing I think that's important for us to know about this bold proclamation, this very succinct, clear, concise, compelling proclamation, I and the Father are one, is that the word one in the text is neuter, not masculine. For you grammarians, that is a big deal. For those of you who aren't, it's still a big deal. Jesus and the Father are not one person. And if the masculine would have been used, it would have stated such. They're individual persons or personalities. The distinction between Jesus and God has already been announced by John In the first verse of this gospel, remember? John could never refer to Jesus submitting to the will of the Father or pursuing the mission of the Father if they were the same person. Jesus and the Father are perfectly one in action, Carson says. In what they do, what Jesus does, the Father does, and what the Father does, Jesus does. But they're two different persons. Many historians and theologians have agonized over the proclamation of Jesus for some time. The Arians of old, some of you are familiar with them from our GLBI classes and some of our classes on church history, but... The Arians of old just simply denied the divine nature of Jesus, period. Of course, that's what the Judaizers were doing. Others, even those of orthodoxy, those who would believe like we would believe, suggest that Jesus is only speaking of the unified purpose of the Father and the Son. We are one in mission. We are One in purpose. And while that is true, that is not what Jesus is proclaiming in this context. We need to also understand that the term one as the spiritual purpose has been used, and we'll study that in John 17 in Christ's high priestly prayer. Certainly, we are one in purpose and mission with the Son, who is one and the same with the Father. But here, we cannot excuse what some call the metaphysical or the spiritual aspect of Jesus's oneness with the Father. We cannot deny the spiritual exact unity of purpose and mission before the mission even commences. In the beginning was the Word, And the word was with God. And the word was God. Jesus had already stated over and again, I can only do the will of my father who has sent me. He's clearly proclaimed that his purpose and mission is exclusively that of the father's. How many times in John chapter eight alone did we see Jesus refer to his origin being of a heavenly nature a divine one his mission and purpose had everything to do with the eternal will of the father and the glory he shared with the father before the foundations of the earth were established And understanding Jesus' proclamation of oneness with the Father here, we must also remember the context of John's Gospel. John 3.16 reminds us that Jesus is the unique, the only begotten Son of God. He's the only one. His Sonship is unique because it's eternal. And yet while we being given the authority to become the children of God is a finite moment of saving faith for us, according to John 1.12. There's a distinct difference between the eternal sonship of Christ and our finite, granting by God's grace, the authority to be called children. While we are finite, born-again children, he is the unique, eternal, only begotten Son of God. I think it's also important for us to remember from John 17 that the divine unity of the Father and the Son Jesus prayed of existed before the unity we as his children have with him in salvation and in mission. The unity of the Father and the Son existed in eternity past before we enjoyed the predetermined spiritual unity we enjoyed with the Godhead and one another. It was never the other way around. It's always been that way. So since verse 30 is really the centerpiece of the text, and since we've studied other self-expressions of Jesus' deity in John, I think it's entirely appropriate to focus upon the attributes of both the Father and the Son in this context as Jesus makes his last call to unbelief, his last public call, should I say, unbelief it's it's appropriate for us to to understand God the Father and God the Son's hearts towards unbelief and the the way we're going to do that is by just examining their attributes in this context you can can read and read and read uh, commentary after commentary and, and the majority of the pages are really about the further examination of the unbelief of the religious leaders. And so I read pages and pages and pages again, rehearsing the same thing that we've already seen. And I I just, um, I don't think we need to do that again. I think a plain reading of the text is what it is. But since verse 30 is the centerpiece of this text, I think we need to make God the father and God, the son, the hero of this text as we should any text. And so let's examine the attributes, the divine attributes that are so clearly demonstrated from the Lord Jesus Christ as God in flesh towards this religious unbelief. And we're gonna unpack uh, quite a handful of attributes that I think are in here both this week And next, and the first that we're going to discuss is the mercy of God. We mentioned it passively by way of introduction the mercy and the long suffering of God. From a finite perspective, I'm just actually amazed that Jesus at this point at the end of his public ministry is willing to put up with one more deceitful attack i don't think any of us have this kind of patience with religious unbelief that we've been pleading with for years and i hope that we would i'm amazed that the lord jesus christ just didn't call those legion of angels to just wipe them out they weren't his sheep anyway Him knowing their hearts, Him knowing their hearts like we could never know omnisciently the hearts of people that we long to come to see Jesus. We don't know if they ever will or won't be. Jesus knew, by the counsel of His own nature, He's still exuding patience and mercy. And I would couple the long suffering of God here as well my heart is overwhelmed with the long suffering element of the mercy of God displayed in Jesus we're commanded and then encouraged from 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 but do not let this one fact escape your notice Peter said Don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some men count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our hearts desire Jesus to set the record straight with these stiff-necked religious ones for the first time. From the first time they confront him after healing the lame man of 38 years in John chapter 5. If the Lord Jesus, with regard to these religious ones and his mercy, lives the very long-suffering of God the Father in their presence for the entirety of of his earthly ministry. He never stops obeying the Father in the midst of the greatest kind of spiritual stubbornness. What do we know of the patience and mercy and long-suffering of God in Scripture? Well, we remember the psalmist's words in Psalm 85, 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. Remember Moses' words in Numbers 14 and verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. The prophet Joel in chapter 2 and verse 13 says, it says, and rend your heart and not your garments, Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. He does not wish to destroy those who remain stubborn. It's hard for us to grasp that. I understand Moses goes on to remind us in that famous chapter you're all familiar with in chapter 34 and verse 6 the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord God compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth the psalmist again in chapter 78 and verse 38, but he being compassionate forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath like he could have. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 48 and verse nine, for the sake of my name, God says, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. You all may have your own passages that you cherish that remind you of God's patient long suffering towards those who remain in unbelief. We all know personally that if it's not for the Lord's mercy, We would all be personally consumed already, right? I mean, really from the very first moment of our existence, God maintained the right to eradicate us from existence. Yet he's immeasurably kind and patient towards us to the moment of our conversion. we're included in that proclamation of Isaiah 53 Pastor Steve alerted to in communion were any of us considered any different than these stubborn religious ones that Isaiah addressed all we like sheep were gone astray turning everyone to his own way and the Lord laid upon Jesus all of our sin the sin of us all and yet we're familiar with the grace of God that Paul reminds the the quarreling, debating Christians in the church of Ephesus, those who had made again a renewed distinction between Jew and Gentile and had caused a division in that church. And Paul, in order to bring them back to their senses, has reminded both peoples from both cultures, and you hath he quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins. The quickening of our dead souls is the very mercy and long suffering of God. To again realize the mercy of God practically demonstrated in Jesus, we need to consider the interactions Jesus was having with these religious ones here for a moment. As we close this morning, we wrap up the examination of this first attribute demonstrated here by God in flesh. Look at verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. What were they wanting him to announce? They said it here. Why were they wanting him to announce himself as Christ? This was something Jesus had never done in his earthly ministry. And he wouldn't. There was a reason for it. We already all know that he didn't have to pronounce himself as Christ to prove that he was God in flesh. He didn't need to do that. The focus here is on the mercy of God in Christ before unbelief. That's the focus. And the reality was that these men had already made up their minds that they were not gonna believe. They're not one of God's sheep. And so they were seeking to trip him up again, deceitfully corner him to announcing something that they knew would cause quite a ruckus. You see, if Jesus proclaims publicly that he's the Christ, then the Jewish religious leaders knew that that would be a declaration of war against the Romans. if he proclaims himself as the Messiah, as king of the Jews, no one else, there was no space in the room for a Roman ruler, a Caesar, to share kingship with another king in their own realm. So if they couldn't kill him, they would get him to declare who he was from a political sense, and therefore cause a problem. You examine this good authors, Hendrickson, Carson, others. You look at this from every angle you possibly can, and all conclusions are that unbelief was just still seeking to have his the life of Jesus snuffed out of the culture. We're seeking their own political, social freedom. Literally, the text says, um, not just how long will you keep us in suspense, but how long will you annoy us? (laughs) That's the idea. Not how long you're gonna keep us waiting on the edge of your seats because we really do believe you're the Messiah. Some believe that he may be, but the Messiah that was going to be king if you remember earlier in John they actually forcibly tried to make him king Jesus' heart is really not to annoy them but for them to see his long suffering and his patience and his kindness so that they would be saved But they wanted a king and not a weak savior that would just be killed and die on a cross. They go on in verse 33. The Jews answered him, for good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Again, the amazing mercy of Jesus, God in flesh demonstrated to them when for the 12th time in the book of John, 12th time in a public way, Jesus defends his nature. And they had already made up their minds after the first as to who he was. But for the 12th time, He defends it with this very exclusive statement. I and the Father are one. And in so doing, we've read this morning what the religious men concluded again. It's not for your works that we seek to kill you. It's because you being anthropos, you being fully man, now we know Jesus Christ was fully man, Right? Doctrinally, they're pretty good right there. They're good. But because you are fully man, yet you still claim to be fully God, this is why we seek to take your life. Amazing mercy, (laughs) amazing long suffering, amazing patience. But as I said before, before we get too caught up with being disappointed with the religious unbelief that Jesus confronted publicly many times. Let's remember how many times he had to confront you before you bowed your knee. And let's be so thankful for his patience and kindness. Amen. How many of you were born again before you were 10 years old? Could you just raise your hand? Before Just look around. Get him up real high. Before you're 10 years old. Uh, studies tell us that about of those who are born again are born again before they're 10. I think there's probably some practical understanding from that from scripture. How many of you were saved between 10 and 20? Almost an equal amount. How about 20 to 30? Raise your hand. Folks, from here, it's almost an equal amount. How many 30 to 40? Raise your hand. Folks, just look around, just real quick. How many 40 to 50 right. to keep your hands up Praise God how many 60 to 70 anybody one two three any 70 to 80 Did I say 40 to 50 50 to 60 anybody 60 to 70. You get the point? Good? I mean, the farther you go along in the decades of life that you live, I think maybe the more amazed you are at the long-suffering of God when you finally do get saved. (laughs) Those of us who are saved as children under 10, I don't know that we fully grasp this. But you folks do. God is merciful, and he's long-suffering. So as you go out to minister to your children, who need Jesus your family members your neighbors your co-workers and as you extend the long suffering of God in your life towards them I pray that uh, your hearts will be encouraged that God's arm is not too short that it cannot save and keep persevering let's pray together father in heaven uh, we love you we thank you for the reality of our experiencing the very long-suffering, compassion, mercy of God demonstrated in Christ for each one of us. I pray, Lord, as we continue to walk through the rest of chapter 10, that we would understand that that you are the centerpiece of attention here. That we're to understand this text in light of your nature, your person, your work, your mission, your purpose. I pray that our hearts would be compelled to give you praise for all who you are. All the ways that you demonstrate yourself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ beginning with his mercy and compassion. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just do want to make an appeal to those of you, regardless what decade of life you're living. There are some here that have heard and heard and heard and heard. And some would not even be as deceitful and Hateful towards Jesus as the religious leaders were. But regardless of your disposition, your mindset towards Jesus, I would encourage you that unbelief is still unbelief. Can I ask you to act upon the very mercy and long suffering of God towards you to act upon it and and not take advantage of it you possibly live with someone that has entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ as the son of God turned from their sin placed their faith in him by the grace of God and their lives have changed and demonstrably they've they've lived the life of Jesus right in front of your eyes, You're eyewitnesses to that change. And maybe it's a fiancé, if not a spouse, and maybe it's a parent or child, or maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you've seen that change. And my friends, that change is Jesus. Could you find your way, by the grace of God, to... Realizing and being thankful for God's patience with you into this moment and and could you just say thank you God for not dealing with me according to my sin could you just pray that right now every Sunday I leave this pulpit especially going through a gospel like we said before I I fear not pleading for your souls if you don't know Jesus. Can you just pray to him and thank him for his patience with you and not dealing with you according to your sins? Can you just say, Lord, thank you for not only your patience, but thank you, Lord, for giving me a relative, a friend who's actually a testimony of Jesus in my life and thank you so much for this person. And I've watched them and their life in Christ is verifiable, it's, it's I've watched it. I, I know what I watched in their life, what it looks like to be forgiven of sin and, and be free to live in the peace of Christ. Lord Jesus, this morning, I'm telling you, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sin of the world. My sin. Lord Jesus, it was me that put you on that cross. Forgive me, Lord. By your grace, I turn from my sin and I throw myself at your feet. Lord Jesus, please, please be my Savior. Rescue me. Save me. How and when a moment occurs for someone to believe is up to our sovereign Lord. But if that moment for you was this morning, I would like to pray for you without embarrassing you or calling you out by name. Would you be willing just to slip up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I prayed to trust Christ today. I want to learn more about that. If you're too shy to raise your hand, come tell me after church. Praise God, thank you. Anyone else? Do you understand enough about who Jesus is? Have you seen enough in somebody else's life to realize that he's real? (laughs) He came to, to die and forgive. Anyone else? How many would say, Pastor Tim... I'm hearing more, I'm learning more, and I appreciate it, but I just have more to learn. Would you pray for me as, as I learn more of Christ? Because I really do believe I want to. I'm not ready to entrust myself to him yet, but Lord, just just pray for me. Anybody, just raise your hand, pray for me. I need to know more of him. Okay, praise God, good. Anyone else? Amen. We would love to help you with that journey, okay? so please come and talk to me after the service Pastor Mike, Pastor Steve that were up here earlier Uh, anyone that you've come with that knows Jesus we'd love to help you understand him more and more Father in Heaven we love you, we thank you for hearing the prayers of sinners made new in Christ we thank you Lord for we worship you for your patience and mercy and compassion and long suffering towards us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I thank you, Lord, for those who have professed Christ recently, even as of this morning. Continue, Lord, to draw men unto yourself. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.